The Pilbara Killings by Sabine T. Shetlam, as read by Andrews Barr. Chapter 10 All appointments with Hilary Carter had been cancelled for the month of June. The Archbishop was in Rome in audience with the Pope, and the diocesan office was effectively closed until his return. It was like lockdown, with no one bothering to tell the angered crowds of protesters who had gathered daily for their ritual of public complaint. Zimmerman and Laura had been over at the Chancery twice, both times without luck as the gate at the front had been chained, with a small note inviting parishioners to contact their local priest for urgent problems or counselling until further notice. It was inconceivable that somehow the church might stubbornly wait it out, as if all would be forgiven upon the leader's return. But the climate was ripe to move now on a vulnerable church. The mood was, if anything, retributive, and the courts felt a leniency towards even the flimsiest excuses for examination. At best, the evidence circumstantial had sufficiently swayed a federal judge to issue a subpoena, and the vans had gone in, seizing all computer terminals. It wasn't, however, as if the police couldn't exactly break into things and a further subpoena would be needed to open Teddy's desk. It was something for the future, Zimmerman thought, and he waited to see what was first on offer from this intrusion. Times like this had called for clandestine connections. Zimmerman opened his files and pulled out some names of his favourite hackers. The Roach and the Spider were his best, and he'd used them before on a tax fraud totally without moral inclinations or remorse. Ideal collaborators, too, who would do as they were told for the perfect price. Or maybe he should invite the new one, the Fire Beetle. What was it with these guys, so many named after invertebrates? It was like they sat around looking for the most impotent moniker of a superhero. He called the Fire Beetle and got his screening answering machine. He would return the call if he was suitably interested. It was flippant and arrogant. Perfect. Jill Masters had her office in the shining new lucent comb of the Perth Psychiatric Institute. It was the city's finest example of modern architecture, with the most uninterpretable iron sculptures outside and doubtless equally unfathomable things within. It had become so popular that all the faded alcoholic television stars with a depression overlay and the sheer joy of a manic episode might be caught entering or exiting the building by any assiduous journalist with a little motivation and a lot of time on their hands. Masters opened the door and darted out a strong, bullet-like handshake. There was no eye contact. She was particularly manly, with a short, cropped, expensive hairdo and a poorly tied Windsor knot. If effeminate chemistry teacher was what she was going for, she had nailed it. Even her voice was low, rough and supremely confident. She was one of those people who felt exceedingly expert on everything. The office was an archaeological homage, small Mayan models and Inca gods. Zimmerman could never tell which was which. African motifs and death masks, remnants of exotic trips to the Serengeti, she moved a large pile of academic papers onto the floor to free up some sitting space. The serial killer business was unquestionably in healthy shape. Zimmerman opened his Jeffreys file, but she was already standing over him, dictating into a small machine as they went. Aboriginal burial rights check, 
violation check, one dead priest check, make that two, a diocesan crisis, but how they connected is anybody's guess. He called her back to earth. They only sought a composite sketch after all. That was really what she did, drew together a face from something faceless, a character in profile, the impression of reality. It was no more than an educated guess on the sort of animal out there. She seemed particularly animated the way someone under-consulted can sometimes feel, like a small tot in a toy shop, or some social worker reading far too much into infant behaviour. She opened up about her ambiguity of service in the most forthright manner. Why is it, she intoned, that everyone who isn't a forensic psychologist actually fancies themselves as one when it matters? Amateur sleuths abound, don't they? And meanwhile, us, the true forensic, lives in a constant pall of self-doubt. It seemed more a candour for effect than anything else, suggesting that what she was offering was nothing more than rich palmistry. And she looked askance with a smirk on her face, either like it was her favourite joke or that she'd just imparted a well-kept secret. Zimmerman now wasn't quite sure, but there were snippets of her art. Uh, an aggressive male, I think, maybe with a physical disability, highly educated but distorted in his interpretation of knowledge, a cultivated paranoia, someone seconded to the Aboriginals but in command. They sort of worked for him and not the other way around. She moved over to the window and opened it so that she could spark up a lady's cigar. A doctor, a lawyer, a priest. All would be quite feasible, she had said without any prompting. Someone familiar with the Aboriginal ways, but who did things so disparate and so estranged from the traditional native manner that he would single out their cultural innocence only by trying to become more like them. He would stand out, she had said, for his impoverished emulation of some of their ways, his heavy-handed attempts at sameness. Zimmerman could not see yet precisely how this would help, but Masters was in full flight. It takes an expert in one culture to separate another, do you see? And as for her, there's no great revelation. A young girl spying him as an abuser, perhaps inadvertently seeing too much and then unable to withdraw in time. She reinforced the impression that Lisa had been witness to something, the likely misunderstanding of an innocent being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the hideous sexual violation? Well, that's the bit that doesn't fit, she replied. It's not sexual per se, do you see? Or at least it's not gender-specific. It's, it's gratuitous, animalistic, or maybe merely a diversion. But diversion is more ritual and far less bestial than this. She was freewheeling, and all her thoughts were vocalised on show. It is there for a reason, and this would have almost no reason. I think diversion might be possible, like the toes tied together, something done to bring in a hound of the Baskervilles when none exists. She seemed almost spent like a medium after a trance. So we're seeking what then? They both asked about the habits of a possible serial killer, and she roused herself up once more, listening intently to Zimmerman's Venetian exposure. Despite his attendance at that single seminar in Venice on the motivations of the serial killer, he had to confess that he actually knew little of their habits, and even less of the obsessions that he presumed so frequently drove them. The course was hastily convened by Sister Castiglione, a retired professor of criminology who had lectured at the University of Venice for the last 30 years. 
and hastily convened because of a collection of elderly widows who'd been strangled with their own black pantyhose over a particularly hot summer on the little island of Judecca. Five of them there were over one nasty week, he said, each with their little black scarf and bonnet and their little black funerary shawl. I've never understood how one minute the most beautiful Italian woman with her arms wrapped around the waist of some lucky guy on a vespa and her auburn hair wisping about in the slipstream can turn into one of those little hunched-over homunculi all swathed in the black mournful robes of widowhood. She laughed at the way he put it. But that aside to throttle the old dears with their own underpants had seemed distinctly cruel. Those little grandmothers never did anyone any harm, locked away most of the day in their kitchens and feeding their extended families their homemade pasta shells and their torta della nonna. Anyway, the chap they finally found turned out to be the most ordinary sort of fellow, a local janitor in a baroque apartment building, a jack of all trades with all the keys and all the trust. She nodded quietly. I bet, she said, that to look at him he would seem the most innocuous little man, and without all the attention no one would have likely given him a second glance. Exactly as you say, but surely they can't all be so bland, or hardly anyone would ever be caught. Well, that's right, she replied, but one imagines perhaps that in some cases that's precisely the point. The merging killer. Someone so insipid that they can live up the hallway, and only after their court can anyone interviewed remark on how they didn't have a goddamn clue. Well, that's one type of serial, he thought, but it didn't all square up. For one thing, Zimmerman himself fancied that these people would be distinguishable by how different they looked or appeared, not by how much they seemed the same. He'd read of them insinuating themselves into crowds and on train station platforms at rush hour, blending in with their ordinariness. Else perhaps all of them possessed some malicious piece of recognisable DNA or that extra antisocial Y chromosome floating about and singling them out like a molecular beacon stamped on their foreheads, as if there was something measurably sinister glowing off of every malignant cell. If anything, our impressions of the serial have been stupidly framed by Hollywood, she said, lighting up another cigarillo. This was the part she most enjoyed and it's some sort of farcical mix between a Bella Lugosi-like figure and something totally deranged out of Friday the 13th, a cross between a tuxedoed avuncular toff and an inbred Ozark redneck. Even your Professor Castiglione would have lectured you on the repetitiveness of their moves, and that too is a uniquely American concept, the province of the copycat with the routine of killing that is the serial's calling card. Those are the guys who need to use some particular piece of silk for the strangling or a favoured hunting knife in their guttings. Zimmerman laughed somewhat inappropriately and told her that he'd always found that type of thing so bloody arrogant. But these people were perfectionists, after all. Some almost anatomists, like the one that interested them now, with a, an inbuilt knowledge of the tortuosity and the breaking strength of someone's carotid arteries. She went on, turning her attention to Laura, if not to keep her interested, perhaps only to frighten her. And still there are those who are wholly obsessed with blood, the look of it, its smell and even the taste, the more the better, lakes of it, runnels and arterial sprays, patting their hands in it over the walls and rolling around in it like logs. She was back in full throat, drinking in its coagulums and covering themselves in its clotted warmth. 
Zimmerman lightened the mood of the room with a crude remark. I mean, the English hero, I can almost understand. Some poor bastard whose father had whipped him within an inch of his life, or else the fucker had been buggered senseless at some boarding school or other. An obsessive, compulsive youth with a cleft lip, or a fat kid who'd been teased into submission and who graduated from pulling the wings off flies to disemboweling cats. That sort of thing. Or then there's the Russian ones who always seem to have a taste for cannibalism. Masters nodded disapprovingly. There's not always such a well-ordered progression of their chaos, and your geographical navigational sense is a bit off, detective. He checked himself and even seemed a little disappointed. A bit of generalisation, but you get my point. There isn't the sort of mastery of that kind of serial killing here in Australia. We don't seem very well schooled in it. None of the artistry. Ours are more mass murderers and don't really care that their killings are just so. Well, there was that mutilator in Sydney, she said. They'd actually called him the mutilator as high praise and probably in higher fear. He'd rate as one for sure, severing off his victims' genitals, and when he grew tired of sleeping with them, he'd throw them into the Sydney harbour. Hard for swimmers these days to think of anything else. Maybe too also that granny killer, the monster from Mosman, who liked to bash the heck out of old ladies for their pension money. Now I think I'm more as uh, I think of him more as just a venal sadist. But you're largely right. The country overall isn't a great breeding ground for your typical cereal, and I agree that if it is a cereal, which I strongly doubt, without the prospect of entering this one's head, the chances of trapping him are pretty remote. They both pleaded with masters in unison. Zimmerman tried to summarise her trains of thought. They'd travelled far off and were still wandering. I think the priests are the key, she said. Find their connection to each murder and to each other. It is a he, I agree with you there. And he's smarter than others realise, but not quite as bright as he thinks he is. He's devout and likely a quotable theologian, but sexually conflicted and most likely a virgin respectful of tradition and obsessive in his manner and demeanour, perhaps even a great collector. And the cabalistic thing? Oh, pure nonsense, she said with emphasis. She'd closed the book on any Jewish connection, but the small part of the Decalogue she thought too was homage. Prayer to the aphorisms, to hold them up for all to see and then to break them, to savage her and then to place her in gentle display. You see, it's all paradox, all conflict. They could not have left Dr Master's office in more confusion. What had she said, really? A possible priest? That was real, and no one had prompted her on that. A professional person brought up there on special task? Someone who goes round buggering kids? Well, sorry, Laura, Zimmerman said. I know it's your religion and all, but that makes it the priest. She catches him at something. Well, you can guess the rest. And he kills her, making it out to be some sacrificial death. I mean, what could be clearer? They both laughed. It seemed so preposterous. And not a single shred of evidence, Laura lamented. Not one, but two dead people were accusing. And what had little Clint seen? We're looking for a ghost, Aidan, a phantom. Try telling that to Marinda and Vernon Jeffries. He softened as he caught of Marinda's white, white teeth and the nearness of her rich, dark smile. There was no pretense, no foreplay of any sort, really. When they got to Zimmerman's house, she unzipped him still in the car and placed his penis inside her mouth 
working up and down it like a well-oiled piston machine. She lifted her skirt up so that he could position his head between her legs, and she lowered herself onto his face, both doing their level best to lick the skin off an apple. She pulled off of him and sucked on her fingers, caressing herself above his mouth, showing him where to go and with what rhythm and firmness. She pushed his head away and parted herself, ramming her own fingers inside. Pulling them out, she placed them in his mouth like she was feeding him candy. He stood up out of the car with his pants around his legs. There was no one around, and this sort of thing would not wait. He turned her onto her belly and she guided him in with ease as women who are ready and willing do, letting out a small, soft groan as she grasped the steering wheel. A few strokes and he pumped her to a satisfying orgasm, pulsating his last few droplets inside and feeling her compensatory rhythmic spasms. Sliding off her, he rolled her onto her back and she splayed out one leg, making no attempt at modesty. She encouraged him to look directly at her, all open, wet and gloopy. She smiled at him with pride and leaned over to lick the last bit of stickiness from his fading erection before bidding him good night. Such a thoughtful girl. No mess. A deed well done. He ordered her a cab. The car reeked of her florid smell and he hoped that its memoried scent would be there next morning. The next day her head was rumbling and she had the sharp flashing auras of a full-blown migraine. Whenever it came, there was always just enough time to take her tablets and abort the whole episode. She swallowed the small white pill that would send this head tremor packing, and within 20 minutes or so, she felt good enough to get out of bed without the incoming light searing into her brain. A shower was in order. Call Zimmerman or let it be. She'll see him later. Not too much enthusiasm. If she stayed like this, nothing would get done. So she dressed drably for church. Father Bill Proudman was not there, and she felt somewhat deflated. He was a forceful preacher and always left Laura feeling a little stronger. There was so much that was not right. Her home life, her studies, her men. It was also temporary and nothing settled her like one of Proudman's public talks. More motivational speaker than prelate, a kind of friend who knew little of her specifics, but much of her generalities. Probably the best way to be. There were only a few people straggling in, one elderly couple dressed neatly seated and fussing with each other's hair, two youths with tight beards whom everyone knew lived together, and a very large young kid handing out the day's psalms. It was a little bleak. Father Bill's replacement, Father Sam Roxborough, did his very best with so little to work with, announcing that Proudman's uh, absence was due to the fact that from now on and for the foreseeable future, he would be caring for his sister at home, advanced Alzheimer's. The group bowed their heads in collective soft prayer. Roxborough rose and told them that he was not a fire and brimstone type of guy. There would be no proudmanisms, dragging in images of the big picture to enliven even the smallest of events. That too was not his forte. He read badly from Matthew 15. The room was quiet its small huddled mass skewed against one far end of the nave, leaving large, neglected, empty spaces with only the sound of the outside wind pushing its way indoors. He continued with the best fire he could kindle. For out of our hearts come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, 
sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Laura thought them all strong biblical complaints, there to frighten and corral its followers into smaller and even smaller pens. The Pharisees had come down from Jerusalem's hills to teach Jesus, not the other way round, had come there to lecture him about how no one was washing their hands before meals anymore. Can you imagine it? Roxburgh looked incredulous but preached on. And God had shown them the way. What was really important, even as tradition, there are those things that are important and things that, shall we say, we can live without. Laura's interest in this was piqued and she listened intently. Roxburgh banged on louder as the hall seemed even quieter. That Jesus had said to them that what goes into the mouth does not defile, but that what comes out of the mouth does. Washing or not washing one's hands cannot defile you. Do you see my point? She stood up and raised her hand like she was back at school. She turned it into a and a session, but Roxburgh didn't seem to mind. How can you decide what you will and will not follow? She was unembarrassed. It's either God's will or it isn't. It's not like we can develop a taste for it. Things are either moral or they aren't, surely. Roxburgh's eyes lightened. You see that one is blasphemy against rule, the washing of one's hands and so forth, but the other, like murder, is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit itself. It's the difference between your heart and your head, the uprightness of one and the malleability of the other. He trailed off into a whisper. The thought may seem first within that there is no sin in there that has not first prospered and formed in the heart. Roxburgh had left her with something to think about, that sin must first be in, the, in one's heart before polluting the head, and that small sins need not be thought of as sins at all. Weak transgressions. It all felt apposite. He came to each parishioner and placed the small, tasteless wafer into each mouth, stopping to touch each one's head and keep each soul from wandering. She moved off, and he was standing there outside the confessional, pulling his rosary bead by bead, stopping after five beads to issue a Hail Mary, and then pulling up the next five for a glory bee. At the crucifix in the middle, he would start again and complete the soft mumblings in their dutiful order. It was not the specifics, but the generalities that stayed with her as she eased herself into the confessional seat and heard the wooden side window slide across and lock. She felt his warm breath come across the divide, and could smell the remnants of his last cigarette. She launched into the rote nature of the Bless Me Father routine, but told him almost immediately of the abortion that still numbed her, of the callousness of it, a decision of a convenience. Perhaps it had been further along, or maybe if she had been a little older, she could have accepted it and not ridded herself of its growing presence. Would the little things have changed her mind on the bigger one? washing hands or murder. He told her that it was a sin, but not its contemplation. She could heal, he had told her, through a change in thought over an act that itself could never be changed. Quite acceptable as example to hate one's enemies so long as one did nothing about it. Just a matter of where it lay, heart or head. She left his confessional, if anything, a little more befuddled.
When Zimmerman returned to his desk, there was a post-it inviting him to call Rabbi Mandelstam. He liked the police secretary, Becky, who had written the note, not only because she was an expert in fellatio and had shared her expertise with him on several occasions, but because she was terribly polite. Her messages always invited their recipient to do something or asked someone if they cared to do this or that. A stickler for etiquette. It was so incongruous. He thought about calling Laura, but decided against it. He felt a little ashamed that it had been prompted more by the thought of sex than by any other particular person. Instead, he called Mandelstam. That was far easier. Much more familiar territory. Did you go back to the site where the girl was found? Mandelstam was eating his lunch. Is there any more scroll to see? The best forensics team had gone out to the circular crypt on Zimmerman's specific instructions after he'd interviewed the old Henry couple. They'd tumbled a metre of earth and mud all the way around with a road cutter landing over a hundred cubic metres of sand and filth out at the forensics lab. One of their most enthusiastic interns had volunteered to sift through it with a pair of tweezers but had given up after three days in frustration with nothing to find. Nope. No luck there, said Zimmerman. Zimmerman underscored the intensive effort. Mandelstam launched into a recent trip he had taken to some interfaith camp. Met a Father Quinn there. Do you know him? Fat bugger. Runs St Alameda's up near the Cappuccino Strip in Fremantle. Very good bridge player. Mandelstam was off track as usual. He knew the small church grounds out the back of a strip of road festooned with alfresco cafes that had given the area its moniker. He said there was a murder out at Albany years back with a decalogue taped to the corpse, whole thing all in Hebrew, but the fellow who confessed was in training for the priesthood. Schizophrenic, institutionalised, at any rate, thought you should know. Oh, I know of the case, but it was all different. We all know of that boy, but he had been at the cemetery speaking in bizarre tongues and acting weirdly for weeks before he finally snapped killed a cat along with it because the voices told him to, and rigged up an alfoil dish outside his room, telling anyone who would listen that aliens or some such would be contacting him. Positively telegraphed his moves, just another example of the church unable to prevent anything. But you should look again, no? Mandelstam always ended his most quizzical sentences with the word no. His most obscure lectures, easy, no? His impossible ponderings, something to think about, no? You know, he said, verbalising his wanderings, as was his habit, we had a young rabbinical scholar here who went mad once. You mean he went mad just the one time, or he once went mad? Zimmerman was getting tired, and when he became cranky, he would often correct either the person or their syntax. Mandelstam ignored him. Came at the head yeshiva rabbi with an axe. Can you believe it? Such a godly man said that the yeshiva boys had spread the foulest thing about him. What could be so bad, I ask you? Remember that murder can be just its expression. The philosopher in Mandelstam was oozing out again and Zimmerman needed to stop it. Our fathers spoke of the killing of someone's reputation, just as important as the physical, and such gossip can even be more inflammatory. Maybe there's someone ordained but holding all of that inside. He hadn't finished his inquisitive sentence this time with a no, and somehow it held more gravitas. Perhaps he had a point. Laura longed to have sex with him again, 
and she thought him such a heartless bastard not to have called the whole morning. But then again, why not think the same of her? She'd stupidly told one boy years before that she loved him and then stayed by the phone all day, unable to pick it up as it rang off the hook so many times. Silly girl. She couldn't pick it up. She didn't want it to be him so that there could be no follow-through, and if it was him, she couldn't have stood his rejection. When they'd met together after two days, he'd argued with her. He told her that she was her worst enemy, that sort of thing, and he'd been right. She was a saboteur. Two more days and they were no longer together, and six short weeks on, she'd heard that he was engaged. She hadn't thought of young Hugh for ages. She wasn't going to ring Zimmerman. He could get stuffed if there was such a price for telling someone, anyone, that she loved them. She'd never do that again. They met that afternoon and fell into bed. The ambiguity gone, she asked him, lying afterwards among the sheets, contorted from their short fury, if he had a girlfriend. He didn't bother to reply and didn't ask something similar of her. That was what she enjoyed. No questions, no annoying details, and no need for the awkwardness of random answers. A meaningless fuck would always trump the sensitivity nonsense, and trying as hard as she might, she could not ever see herself in some relationship stranglehold with this man. This would do just fine for the moment. In the, th in the shower, she thought of it, hitting her like a bolt. She screamed aloud, but, while, but with the running water at the beginning, he had not heard. Finally, he came into the bathroom, slapping open the door in one move, worried that something had possibly happened to her. Her cries had seemed so emergent. He patted down her body as if she were a child, looking for any visible marks of harm. No, no, she said. It's a rosary. That's the marks on their necks. The five small marks and then the space. The cross in the middle. The order of the five. It can't be anything else, do you see? It seemed incongruous that she was standing there naked, the water dribbling towards her thighs in curved runnels, talking of these religious things but she was earnest in epiphany. You can ask Atwood to do some experiments, but I'm certain. When she dried up and toweled herself, she told him how she had seen Father Roxburgh playing with his rosary, reciting the observances. He knew of the rosary, but not of how it was supposed to work. The circuit of five groups of beads are strung to the crucifix. To start is to start at the cross, first with the Apostles' Creed to believe in the Holy Trinity and nothing else to spread one's fingers out on each bead with then and our Father and the Holy Marys and then a glory be, orphaned without its bead on which to stand. And then remembering again with an our Father rounding the first cluster of beads again and again, the five joyful mysteries of Christ's birth and life, to show the personal frailties of his youth and how even he might have strayed without good attention. Roxburgh had given her the idea, to be sure, but still she felt that this was her discovery. Clever thing. The first was a full crucifix, but the second one is broken. It wasn't an L at all. Clint would have snapped it off, struggling, and that is what they found under the skin of his hands. She sat back confidently while Zimmer made some simple drawings of a broken cross that could have looked like letters of the alphabet. But she was right. It was obvious. Chapter 11 The obituaries of Alan Quatermain and Quentin Andrews from the Perth Examiner were remarkably similar, almost as if written by the same hand. 
Both had no family to speak of, and both had died a few months after return to Perth from secondment to the Pilbara missions. Both have advanced pancreatic cancer, and both intoning mourners, if there were any, to donate to the Pancreas Now campaign, targeting the scourge of these terrible deaths. The registry officers had faxed along their birth certificates, Quatermain born in Hull, England, and Andrews in Bridgetown, Barbados, both on the same day, the 22nd of November, 1963. That stuck in his mind. He leaned over to DC Childers, a reliable, warm man nearing retirement and dozing next door, no doubt dreaming of some big fish. Sorry to wake you. I do my best thinking with my eyes closed, he said. Mean anything to you, Ben? There was only a split second's thought. Sure. The day JFK was assassinated, we all know where we were that day and all the stuff that happened around it. He drifted off again. A fateful day, he thought. Something for any identity thief to hang his hat on. He sent an email to the Hull Registry and to the Bridgetown Births, Deaths and Marriages Office. The diocesan notes on both could have been a perfect match were it not for the different places of their birth and the different names of the referees. The wordings of the referees were almost identical. He jotted down each one and googled them in a search. One, a father James Gagan from Scarborough. Another, Bishop Livingston Ford from Trinidad. The internet came up with a million generic hits, but nothing that matched what he was looking for. Taking into account the time differences, he needed to speak to a real person, and he called the local authorities for answers, but there was little usable information which came forward over the ensuing days. There were plenty of Irish fathers, all right, but none had been in Scarborough or Hull, for that matter, at the times Quarterman had referenced them. What's more, no Bishop Ford could be found in Trinidad. It was a place of such extraordinary violence and disruption back then, but in spite of all of this, its bishops were as stable as a rock. Only three in the past 30 years, Albright, Pitt Hempel and Bryce Edwards. Good God, these people were more English than the English, he thought. Perhaps there might be a way he could wangle a trip down there on the government purse. Just aiding his investigations, he could claim. It all looked like one big beach. The thriving metropolises of Hull seemed less appealing. Christ, what a bleak place it appeared on his internet search. All patterned block box weatherboard houses cramped up against one another like dominoes facing out to the even bleaker North Sea. All the pictures were perennially blowing a gale. He read of its mass exodus after its bustling port had fought their great cod war with Iceland for the fishing rights and lost. Tales of a town in despair selling its home-grown cheap maggoted fillets to the unsuspecting tourists and to those with little choice. No, he wasn't going there. Most of the fire beetles' work was pretty simple. He was confident he could breach the diocesan firewalls and basic encryption systems were his specialty. He could crack them like a soft walnut. But first thing, he needed Armitage's password. No amount of badgering Oleander by Zimmerman had made a difference. She simply didn't know it, and he was certain Pinkerton should not be involved. The fire beetle had to think like an old widow, putting in her initials and date of birth or making combinations of her husband's name and birthday. No luck. None with her husband's date of death either. An hour on this proved unfruitful. The Armitage will had left everything to the diocese with no personal benefactor. 
He called Zimmerman in frustration and asked about her special effects inventory. Zimmerman told him that he would call back after he'd asked the office secretary to chase up all the details. When Zimmerman returned to his office after a rich spaghetti langoustine at the trattoria nearby, polite Becky had left a post-it note on top of the box with an inventory slip, if he would be so kind as to fill it in at his convenience and how long he might need the items she had written. He thought fondly of her mouth and rejected it. When spoiled for choice, Laura now had pole position. The police box on the Armitage belongings was sparse, containing all that had been on her when she was killed. A Victorian cameo brooch, a small Tissot silver watch, a wedding ring that had to be cut off, a photograph of her cat, Sapphire. Her clothing and furniture and all the other items had been sold off at public auction with a letter from the Hopewood Funeral Home about the value of the sales. Not much to go on there. He called the Beetle, who typed in Sapphire with immediate entry. No thanks at all, as he'd already hung up and was straight on to her files. These guys, after all, were not the good guys. The ethical hackers. The white knights. They didn't go around checking the cyber security of different companies in complex games. These were the guys ripping off merchant banks or breaking into the national grid. But if he needed them, he needed them. They were necessary, like algae. It was suddenly clear why they were all calling themselves insects, feeding on the cyber detritus of life. Maybe without them, the lives of everyone might be in jeopardy, overwhelmed with scum data that might infect the whole world. But for the moment, he couldn't see it. The beetle entered through the applications folder, pushing it aside and running across to his target contaminating the trust systems built into the software and then the hardware. He established a new form of control with ease. A poetic curriculum played in his head as he tapped away quietly at the obedient keys. The old programming network fell before him and he mouthed the words, Ladies and gentlemen, we have a new leader, as the borders of trust within the system all collapsed. He punched his fist in the air, but it had become routine. If there was any intruder detection system in the processor, it was blissfully unaware of his clandestine entry. There was a large file on Pippin, dates, names of the young boys, predilections, juicy, far more than the two known whose families had complained. Systematic abuses over 20 years all chronicled, like one day they might make an SBS documentary on it. How could he have survived three different parishes? No counselling, and still they had some place for him in the church, always some excuse or deferment, led off even more precarious hooks. So many meetings and resolutions just flicked past away. The bishop's seal was all over it, all those lurid details and places. To think that it had happened there in the vestry or in the refectory, places where they ate for God's sake, all was now defiled. Zimmerman knew that Teddy was up for it, a small Catholic boy playing in a big pond, but to catch him, he'd have to go up the chain. Nothing on a Father Quatermain or a Father Andrews, the Beetle reported. They were in amongst the parish list, but only notation of their deaths. All that was signed by Hilary Carter. The Beetle concluded business and reminded Zimmerman of the details of his offshore account. 
The priests had pushed on to new heights, or maybe they'd plumbed new depths. Teddy was in Rome, and the ABC News had shown him with the new Pope, all smiles and flash photography. One attempt at a hastily aborted press conference was beamed live into suburban homes in Perth, but it had been cut short for technical reasons. No, he could not comment on the Pippin case, as it was now a matter for the courts. Yes, he was confident that St Joseph's, and by extension he personally, would be fully vindicated in the natural course of events. Sure, he hoped that all would work out in favour for the victims, uh, the alleged victims, oh, and their families. Absolutely, the church would cooperate with all investigations. And finally, almost as an afterthought, we might all place our trust in God, he had said. It was all so smooth and adept, like he was volleying back their questions over a simple net, but it was taking its toll as these things do. All that could be seen was his reddened face, bloated with anger, the words coming out at his mouth only as a soft whisper. There was nowhere for the energy to go, all of it sublimated but now stored up. For those keeping score, the sharp confidence of his earlier weeks was now lost. The slight stammer had returned. He tried to smile for the cameras. Finding the climate to his liking, some he had suggested uh, that he might remain in Rome as a Vatican legate, advising on matters of foreign policy. Intimating that his health may not be up to scratch to travel back to Australia for any lengthy depositions. It could all be done by Skype or something, he assured them. Long flights might bring out the failing elements of a previously undisclosed heart complaint and might just force him to remain close to the pontifical seat, like an errant child protected by the father, or that is how it seemed. And what of his elevation to Cardinal, asked one local reporter from the Corriera della Sera, a flash of an answer from the stronger man of a week before. Like the climate too, he had told them defiantly, even when it was to one's liking, it could always prove so unpredictable. The street conference was over as quickly as it had assembled. No real answers to new questions, just a reluctant priest and his shielding entourage. It had served neither side particularly well. Mr Justice Rotherham received the petition for subpoena of the Archbishop's personal papers in poor humour. The most devout of Catholics, he felt no need to recuse himself just because of his religion. As far as he knew, church and state were quite perfectly separated, thank you very much, and he could see no conflict. If others may object in the future, it was not for him to time travel and encounter the whims of some hypothetical objectors, all so eloquent. The fact that he'd personally known Teddy for twenty years needn't come into it. If he would make any judgment at all, he had said, it would be more, not less secure. Part of the problem was the smallness of the state, top-heavy at the upper end of the pyramid, and still packed with knights of the realm and blowhards. There was no breathing space up there in the tight atmosphere for the company of complete strangers. There was only entry for those who knew everyone else in the penthouse, and no other available magistrate would have had any fewer connections to the archdiocese. And so it remained, Mr Justice Nigel Rotherham. What an ascetic man, totally devoted to the nuances of the law, a stickler for precedent, so desperately afraid that precedent would strike him down in one of the appeals courts, just quote precedent at him, one after another, and then any lawyer was home and dry. 
The court was almost empty, with the Department of Public Prosecution's lawyer pleading for discovery. He laid out the Crown's case succinctly. Sexual abuse, Pippin, diocese communiques, the Armitage murder, its aftermath, the recent travel habits of the Archbishop. It seemed compelling enough that all the strands were thinly connected, not pulled taut. The brief for the church, Archibald Harold QC, for once was out of his depth and lost his grip. What say you to this precedent, Mr Harold, intoned Rotherham, a similar case suing for diocesan records, Crown v Mayhew, 1958. Have you read it? Rotherham was bending over backwards in fairness, the old case having attempted to protect the church under similar circumstances in the past. I believe your own father defended the case with distinction, but I might add, without success, he cooed. One more nail in the coffin and the state left clutching their piece of paper. Zimmerman now had freedom to rifle through the church drawers with impunity. It was just like the royal show, cameras flickering as he broke open the bishop's desk with a crowbar to staccato cheers from the gathering crowd outside and peering through the open French windows. He ran through the papers all in different coloured manila folders, most with the threats over Pippin, and soon enough Inglesos was confessed to their authorship. The silver stars and the gold elephants trickling on the carpet, symbols of the goodness of innocent youth, deserving of recognition and reward. But at the bottom of the drawer, beneath all the memoranda on how to handle the press and on what to tell the families and their lawyers, was a shiny red rosary with a broken cross. <laughs>